ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so last time then we had started the chapter باب ما جاء في الذبح لغير الله the chapter regarding what has been mentioned in terms of slaughtering for other than the sake of Allah and we had mentioned the first ayah قل إن صلاتي ونسكي ومحياي ومماتي لله رب العالمين and we'd mentioned that and gone through it. And also the second evidence, وانحر, We had done that and gone through it. And also the third evidence, the hadith of Ali radiyallahu anhu, قَالَ حَدَّثَنِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ بِأَرْبَعِ كَلِمَاتٍ that the Prophet ﷺ informed me of four statements or affairs. لَعَنَ اللَّهُ مَنْ ذَبَحَ لِغَيْرِ اللَّهِ Allah curses the one who slaughters for other than the sake of Allah. لَعَنَ اللَّهُ مَنْ لَعَنَ وَالِدَيْهِ Allah curses the one who curses his parents. لَعَنَ اللَّهُ مَنْ آوَى مُحْدِثَ أَوْ مُحْدَثَ That Allah curses the one who innovates. لَعَنَ اللَّهُ مَنْ غَيَّرَ مَنَارَ الْأَرْضِ That Allah curses the one who changes the boundaries of the land. رواه مسلم Then we had come on to the final narration in the chapter that we had left. And that's the narration of Tariq ibn Shihab. أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال دخل الجنة رجل في ذباب ودخل النار رجل في ذباب قالوا وكيف ذلك يا رسول الله قال مر رجلان على قوم لهم صنم لا يجوزه أحد حتى يقرب له شيئا فقالوا لأحدهما قرب قال ليس عندي شيء أقربه قالوا به قرب ولو ذبابا فقرب ذبابا فخلوا سبيله فدخل النار وقالوا للآخر قرب فقال ما كنت لأقرب لأحد شيئا دون الله عز وجل فضربوا عنقه فدخل الجنة رواه أحمد This narration then famously known as the hadith of the fly There are certain narrations in the sunnah and they are known by certain titles. For example, the famous Hadith of Jibreel, known as the Hadith of Jibreel. This is another example. It is known as the Hadith of the Fly. 
because as you will see in the narration it mentions that a man entered paradise because of a fly. Fee in that section there. دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةَ رَجُلٌ فِي ذُبَابٍ The fee here doesn't just mean in as we translate in English. Here it means due to. A man entered paradise due to a fly. And another man entered the hellfire due to a fly. They said, the companions said to the messenger, And how is that, O Messenger of Allah? Meaning, how did a person end up in paradise because of a fly? And how did another person end up in the hellfire because of a fly? So then the Messenger ﷺ informed them that there were two men and they passed by a particular people, a particular village, And these particular people in that village or town, they would not allow anyone to pass through their road, through their village, through their town. They would not let any travelers pass through until the travelers sacrificed something for their idol. So the people of that area, that village, that town, They said to these two men, or they said to one of them, Sacrifice something, قَرِّبْ Sacrifice something to seek closeness to our idol. He said, I don't have anything with me to sacrifice. They were travelers, they had nothing, they were just on their way home. No other items or provisions with them. So he said, I have nothing to sacrifice, no animal, nothing with me to sacrifice. They said, sacrifice to seek closeness to our idol, even if it be a fly. Sacrifice, even if it be just a fly. So that man caught a fly and sacrificed a fly. He slaughtered a fly in seeking closeness to this idol. And so when he did that, they let him pass. He passed. <clears throat> Then the second man, they said to him, You now sacrifice something seeking closeness to this idol. He said, I would never sacrifice anything seeking closeness. to anyone besides Allah. So he refused. And in the narration it mentions, they therefore refused him safe passage and instead struck his neck, killed him. And he enters paradise. So you see what happens in the narration. The two men, they are traveling and their pathway goes through this particular village or town or area, and the people of that village or area do not allow anyone to pass through unless those people sacrifice something for their idol. So they said to the two men, do something. One of them said, I have nothing. They said, even if it's a fly. So he did it. 
He got a fly and sacrificed a fly. So they let him pass. But the hadith says he ends up in the hellfire because of that. Because he sacrificed for other than the sake of Allah. For the sake of this idol of this. And the other one refused and said, I would never do that except for Allah. So they refused him safe passage and killed him. But he enters paradise for remaining firm upon Tawheed. So this hadith then, the first thing that could be mentioned, and many of the scholars they highlight, is that there is some discussion over the authenticity of the narration for various reasons. There are various issues that have been mentioned about this narration or the chain of narration. There is an'ana in the chain of narration, a form of the sciences of hadith that would dictate that there is some weakness possibly in this chain of narration. Also because the narrator himself, they say he never actually heard anything directly from the Prophet ﷺ. But even if that be the case, the majority of the scholars agree that the narrator was a companion. And so it would be classed as a mursal of a companion, which again in the sciences of hadith would be acceptable. And even if all of that is not acceptable, even if, then the scholars they say, the ruling that has been mentioned in this hadith is not a ruling that can just be made up. That a man sacrificed for the idol and he entered the hellfire. To say someone entered the hellfire and someone entered paradise could only be by way of revelation. A narrator couldn't just make that up and just guess, well, he probably entered fire and he probably entered paradise. It can't be. This is a piece of information that could only be via revelation. So the scholars, they sometimes call this, they give it the hukmur rafa' that the hadith, it is something acceptable. The meaning of it could not be made up. You cannot just make up who's in paradise, who's in hellfire. So in any case, the hadith is generally accepted. And even if you say, no, it's not, and you investigate and the chains of narration, etc., then even if that be the case, then as the scholars have mentioned, as Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab only puts those kinds of narrations in to Kitab al-Tawheed as supporting evidences, not primary evidences. Because there are the odd few narrations in Kitab al-Tawheed that are weak. There are a few narrations that are weak. But the scholars have said those narrations are not being used as primary evidences. They are being used as supporting evidences. So if now this chapter, we just stopped it at where we left off last week, and didn't even mention this hadith, would the chapter still fully make sense and we have all the evidences already? You do. The primary evidences were there. Ayat of the Quran, authentic narrations. So now these are supporting evidences. This hadith is another supporting evidence regarding this affair of sacrificing for other than the sake of Allah. So that is the way to understand that. If anybody says, but there are some weak narrations in Kitab al-Tawheed, 
You can tell them the narrations that are weak or have some weakness in them. They are secondary narrations, supporting narrations. They are not the core of the evidence. We already have many other evidences that are the core in that particular chapter, that particular topic. So even if you exclude all of the weak narrations, it doesn't impact upon Kitab al-Tawheed and the message of Kitab al-Tawheed. So now then in this hadith, عن طارق بن شهاب البجلي الأحمسي Companion أدرك النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لكنه لم يسمع من الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم فيكون حديثه عن الرسول مرسل صحابي ومراسيل الصحابة مقبولة من غير شك That's what we just mentioned regarding the chain of narration. Then in the hadith it says, دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةَ رَجُلٌ فِي ذُبَابٌ That a man entered the hellfire because of a fly, due to a fly. When the companions, they heard this from the Prophet, and this is basically a story from Bani Israel. This is basically an event which occurred from Bani Israel. From the times of old, from the times of Bani Israel, this event and this story occurred. So the Prophet ﷺ was narrating this to the companions. And when he told them that a man ended up in the hellfire and in paradise, another one because of a fly, the companions were surprised. That how could this be? What happened? How did he end up in the hellfire or in paradise because of a fly? So they asked the Prophet ﷺ, So how was that, O Messenger of Allah? So the Prophet ﷺ tells them that from the nations of the past, from Banu Israel, there were these people in this particular village or area, and they had this road that went through their area, and those people, they had a sonam, an idol. And remember, a sonam, asnam, they are the idols that are sculptured into a shape. Whereas the othan can be anything generally, a rock, a tree, a stone. But this was a sonam, something they had sculptured into their idol. And so they did not used to allow anyone to pass through until those people would sacrifice something to this idol of theirs, to honor this idol of theirs. So they said to one of the two men, sacrifice something in honor of this idol. And he said, but I don't have anything to sacrifice. He said, I don't have anything to sacrifice. And notice, he didn't say, I will not sacrifice for this idol of yours. He simply said, I don't actually have anything to sacrifice. And there's a difference between the two. There's a difference between saying, I refuse outright, regardless of whether I've got anything or not. But he's saying to them, it's as though he's saying to them, if I had something, maybe, but I haven't got anything. So his excuse was because he hasn't got anything. 
not because he was telling them, I refuse outright. So when they said to him in that case, do anything, even a fly, even if it be a fly, so then that individual did catch a fly and sacrifice it for the sake of this idol of theirs. So then they allowed him to pass, but the ruling in the hadith given upon him is, that as a consequence of that action, he ends up in the hellfire, indicating that sacrificing for other than the sake of Allah, even if it be a fly, it is the intention that counts. You have now sacrificed honoring other than Allah, for the sake of other than Allah, even if it be something as low and small as a fly, then the ruling is the same upon that person. He has sacrificed for other than the sake of Allah. And so he enters hellfire. And the other individual, when they said to him, do so, he refused outright and said, I would never sacrifice anything for other than the sake of Allah. And so they killed him. In this narration then the meaning that is being mentioned is clear. And that meaning is made even more apparent by the example. Sacrificing for other than the sake of Allah is an act of shirk. Even if it be something as small and tiny as a fly, it's your intention that counts there. You have now made the intention to do this act of worship for other than the sake of Allah, even if the actual act is something insignificant or small, like sacrificing a fly, the point is you have now made the intention and done that act, which is an act of worship, for other than the sake of Allah, and that is therefore shirk. Some of the scholars have mentioned that these individuals were compelled that the first individual who ended up sacrificing a fly only did so in order to be able to pass. He wanted to pass through to get to the other side and carry on to where he lived, his village, his town. He only did it for the sake of being able to pass through because that was the only route and they wouldn't allow anyone through unless they sacrificed. So he needed to get through. So he was compelled and he sacrificed. And yet still upon being compelled to sacrifice for the sake of getting through, he still ended up in the hellfire because he still did an action of shirk. That's what some scholars have mentioned. However, there may be an issue with that explanation, which is that He was compelled, so what's the problem though with that? If he was compelled, he was compelled. He only wanted to go through and get home to his family. He wasn't doing it for the sake of the idol, to honor the idol. He was just doing it for the sake of being able to get through. And yet still, his action was deemed a shirk. And still, he entered hellfire. But what's the problem with that explanation? Uh-huh. With the first person for now. 
But what? His actions were intentional. If his intention wasn't for that, then he wouldn't have been judged according to that. So, his intention was just to get home. Yeah. It wasn't for the sake of the... So why did he go to hellfire then? Uh, is that why some scholars say that can't be the correct meaning? But that's what I'm asking. Why? Why do they say that? Because this person is compelled and is forgiven. Exactly. Because of the principle that you are not held accountable upon compulsion. إِلَّا مَنْ أُكْرِهَ وَقَلْبُهُ مُطْمَئِنْ Except for the one who is compelled, but his heart is firm upon iman. So if he was only doing that under compulsion, just for the sake of being able to get through, then how come he ended up in the hellfire? That's why some of the scholars say that explanation doesn't really seem to work. We can't really say that he was compelled and yet he still ended up in the hellfire. They don't really match because if he was genuinely compelled and he only did it under compulsion, then he wouldn't be in the hellfire. So it's not really a case of compulsion here. The man knew what he was doing and did it in order to seek the pleasure of the people to honor their idol. He did the action knowing what he was doing. And it wasn't a case of compulsion to claim that he only did it under compulsion. So that's something some of the scholars mention. I think even in the Masail it is mentioned. But some of the scholars they mention that could not be the case really. So now then, in this narration, you have a supporting evidence that sacrificing for other than the sake of Allah is an act of shirk, and that this individual who did so ended up in the hellfire, even though it was only a fly, nothing significant or major, not a camel or a cow, a fly even, but that he did it for other than the sake of Allah, and that is an act of shirk. So the meaning of the narration is clear. The meaning of the narration is clear for the subject of this particular chapter. So that is known as the hadith of the fly. Then we move on to the next chapter, which is basically a part two. The next chapter is a part two to the chapter that we've just done. The chapter we've just done is about the impermissibility of slaughtering for other than the sake of Allah. The next chapter is Bab La Yuthbahu or La Yuthbah. Both are possible. Lillahi bimakanin yuthbahu fihi li ghayrillah. That sacrificing for the sake of Allah is not to be done in a place where sacrificing for other than the sake of Allah is also done. Sacrificing for the sake of Allah, but in a place where sacrificing for other than the sake of Allah is also done, then that is not permissible to do it there. So, somebody can do the reading first. Have the small mic. Who wants to do it?
لا يدفأ لله بمكان يدفأ فيه لغير الله وقول الله تعالى لا تكن فيه أبدا الآية عن ثابت بن ضحاك رضي الله عنه قال نذر, نذر رجل أن ينهر إبلا ببوانة فسعل النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال هل كان فيها وثن من أوثان الجاهلية يعبد قالوا له قال هل كان فيها عيد من أعيادهم قالوا له فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أوت بنفرك فإنه لا وفاء لنفر في معصية الله ولا فيما لا يملك ولا فيما لا يملك النعاذ so in this chapter now then, we have the first, oh well, before we get to the first evidence, the title of the chapter is that you do not slaughter for the sake of Allah in a place where they slaughter for other than the sake of Allah in it. And so this chapter is directly connected to the previous chapter in terms of talking about this act of worship, of sacrificing and slaughtering. In the title you can say, Bab la yudhbahu, or la yudhbah, and it's even possible to use the normal verb, la yadhbahu. It is possible in all of the forms, and they have slightly different meanings in the Arabic grammar, as Allah an nahiya, as Allah an nafiya those things are mentioned in grammar. But bab la yudhbahu, it is not to be slaughtered for Allah in a place where they slaughter for other than the sake of Allah. And that's because لِأَنَّ الذبح فِي هَذَا الْمَكَانِ وَإِنْ كَانَ لِلَّهِ فَإِنَّهُ وَسِيلَةٌ إِلَى الشِّرْكِ Because slaughtering in that kind of place that has been specified particularly by the mushrikun to be slaughtering for other than the sake of Allah in. If you slaughter in that place, it is potentially opening up an alleyway, a door into shirk occurring. فَإِنَّهُ وَسِيلَةٌ إِلَى الشِّرْكِ وَكَذَلِكَ فِي الذَّبْحِ فِي هَذَا الْمَكَانِ تَعْظِيمٌ لَهُ and also, if you use that same place that the mushrikun use to slaughter for other than the sake of Allah, then it's as though you are magnifying the importance of that location. It's as though you are magnifying, you're indicating the greatness of that particular location that you have gone and used that location yourself to, to slaughter for the sake of Allah. وَمُشَابَهَا لِلْمُشْرِكِينَ And on top of that, it would be a form of imitation of the mushrikun, that you're resembling them in their activities. They specify a particular location where they go and slaughter, and you're going to go to that same location of theirs and slaughter at it. Then it's as though you are resembling them in their act. So there are multiple reasons why the Prophet wasallam forbade from this and the evidences in the Qur'an and the Sunnah forbade us from doing that. فَقَدْ نَهَا النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ عَنِ الْوَسَائِلِ الْمُفْضِيَّةِ إِلَى الشِّرْكِ The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم, not only did he warn us from the acts of shirk, 
but he also warned us from the acts that lead on to shirk from acts that may not be shirk in and of themselves but they are actions that can open the door to shirk they are actions that can lead to shirk so the prophet ﷺ warned us from those types of actions too warned us from the actual shirk and from the actions that can open the door to shirk and there are many examples of that we're going to get to the example regarding the graveyards when the prophet ﷺ initially forbade them forbade the muslims from visiting graveyards completely because in the early days when they had just come into islam one of the greatest doors to shirk previously in jahiliya was the graveyards, so that door was closed initially until they became firm in aqidah and then it was permitted to visit the graveyards. In the Qur'an, لا تقرابوا الزنا Do not go close to fornication. It doesn't say do not do fornication. It says do not even go close to it, i.e. even the actions that lead on to it, stay away from them. Stay away from the actual act, obviously, but the ayah there in the tafsir of it, the scholars have mentioned, it is telling you, stay away from the act, but stay away from the affairs that lead on to and bring you close to that act. So all of the doors to shirk, they are closed in the Qur'an and the sunnah also. So this is that type of thing. Because if you slaughter in a place where the mushrikun specify their slaughterings, but you're doing it for the sake of Allah, your actual slaughtering and your actual act, it is being done for the sake of Allah. But the method of how you're doing it and where specifically you're doing it could be a means to opening up the door to shirk occurring. And so that has been prohibited and those doors have been closed. There are other examples as Sheikh Al-Fawzan mentions here uh, from amongst those, the impermissibility of praying towards the graves. The hadith, لا تصلوا إلى القبور ولا تجلسوا عليها Do not pray towards the graves. If somebody says, but I am praying sincerely, purely for the sake of Allah. We say no, okay, but no, not to the graves. Pray to Allah sincerely, but not in the direction of the graves, because that will then visually, for you and for others, possibly open up a door to shirk, that the people they see you praying towards a grave, or you yourself, maybe step by step the door opens up to you. Another example the shaykh gives is the prohibited times of the prayer how many times in the day is it prohibited to pray three how many times in the day is it prohibited to pray not allowed to pray certain times of the day how many times of the day two Three, five. 
Laugh at him louder, five. It's possible, five. And it's possible, three. But the two, Allah alam about the two. The two is incorrect, but three and five. They are three times of the day if you talk about them in the general sense. But if you break them down, you can break them down into five times of the day. Generally then the three, if you talk about them in the general sense, they are after Fajr in the morning up until after, up until after sunrise. And then at the time of at the zenith, and then at the time of the sunset and coming to the sunset. Those are the three general times you can break them down into five times. But why did the Prophet ﷺ forbid us from praying at those times? Even if you're praying for the sake of Allah purely, sincerely, it's prohibited to pray at those times. Because the morning time, the sunrise time, the sunset time, it is mentioned about the sun and it rising between the horns of shaitan and that the mushrikun used to worship the sun itself for all those kinds of reasons we were prohibited from doing our act of worship of praying during that time because the mushrikun used to specify those times of sunrise and sunset and uh, when the sun is between the horns of the shaitan and so we were prohibited to close that door from praying at those times so every time or location that the mushrikun have specified, then we do not imitate or resemble them in those practices to close the door to any potential shirk down the line in those actions. So here, that's what the title of the chapter is saying. Basically, if there is a specific location that the mushrikun have specified, they slaughter for other than the sake of Allah in, then you should not go and slaughter in that location. Even if you are slaughtering purely for the sake of Allah, don't use that location. That is the location the mushrikun have specified. And this therefore indicates that, because you could say, but why is that a problem? The location is just a piece of land. It's a piece of land. They go to a particular piece of land and they do their slaughtering there. It's a piece of land. How does that impact on your worship if you go there and do it sincerely for the sake of Allah? How does that piece of land affect you? It's just a piece of land from the earth. Because as the scholars have mentioned here, the intentions of the people, the intentions and the objectives and the uh, goals and aims of a particular people, they impact upon that location. They have now specified that location for their shirk. You should not then go and use that to do the same act of worship upon Tawheed in that location. As for the issue that everybody's going to ask about then, which is more than that, praying in churches. How can you buy a church and convert it into a mosque in this case? We'll come to that in a moment. So the first evidence we have in this chapter now highlighting this point is the ayah. La taqum fihi abada. Do not stand within it ever. Do not pray within it ever. This is a prohibition that came to the Prophet 
regarding Masjid Al-Dirar. The story behind this is that an individual by the name of Abu Amir Al-Rahib, they used to call him Abu Amir the monk. He used to read the books of old, the books of old, the books of philosophy, the books of various affairs. He used to read those and educate himself. And he had gone to the lands of Sham and he had seen the idol worship they were upon. He had seen the ways of the Christians, the ways of the Jews. And he was impacted by these affairs and he was known to be a man of worship. And he was known as Abu Amir al-Rahib initially. Abu Amir the monk. But when, and the people used to respect him. The people used to respect him. A man of worship, a man of religion, Abid. But when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam made hijrah and came to Medina and came with tawheed and nullified all of shirk and their practices, that obviously angered Abu Amir who was upon shirk. When we say he was a worshipper, not a worshipper upon tawheed, a worshipper upon shirk. So it angered him and he envied the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and in fact, in the end, it's known that the Prophet ﷺ actually called him Abu Amir al-Fasiq. He used to be known between the people as Abu Amir al-Rahib, Abu Amir the monk, and yet in the end the messenger said he is Abu Amir the Fasiq. So this individual, he was angered and envied the messenger when he came to Medina. And it's mentioned that he played a key role by going and connecting with the Christians of the land of Sham and the Jews and the Mushrikun of those various lands. And in summary, they made a plot, a plan to establish a building where they could gather in order to plot against the Muslims. But they couldn't just build some type of church or temple. That would be obvious to the Muslims that these are kuffar getting together in there. So they decided to build what appeared to be a mosque. And they were kuffar, Abu Amir and the other munafiqun. But they planned and plotted this plan to build a building that appeared to be a mosque. And they built it near to where Masjid Quba is. Now in Medina, just on the outside where Masjid Quba is, just near there they built this other mosque, inverted commas. And they made their excuses, we need to have another mosque right next to Quba because there are elderly people up here, they can't even make it to Quba. Sometimes it's cold at night and this neighborhood, instead of walking to Quba there, they can just come here. There are elderly people, it will be easier for them. They made excuses. All this is mentioned in the books of Sirah. They made their reasonings and their excuses as to why they need another mosque right next to Masjid Quba just up the road. So then they built that mosque there, inverted commas mosque. What was not really a mosque, but they were pretending to make it look like a mosque. It was all the munafiqun, the hypocrites. And then to get the stamp of approval on it, so that nobody would ever suspect them, 
they asked the Prophet ﷺ, even though they were munafiqun, hypocrites, kuffar, just to make their plan solid. They said to the messenger, would you come and pray in our mosque? They requested from the messenger to come and pray in this so-called mosque of theirs. Because they knew if the messenger comes and prays there, then there would be no suspicion left upon them. It would be said even the messenger went and prayed there. No suspicion would be upon them. And as some scholars said, the fact that they built it as a mosque meant they could regularly get together in there and nobody would have any suspicion. People would just say, they're getting together for a class. They're getting together for Qur'an. They're getting together to do dhikr, uh, remembrance, Qur'an, hadith. You get together in mosques. There are gatherings in mosques. So they wouldn't be under any suspicion as opposed to getting together in one of the homes of the munafiqeen regularly. Then suspicion may occur. Why are they always getting together? What are they doing at night in the home of this guy and that guy? So they built a mosque, they can get together there regularly, no suspicion on them. They'll even get the messenger to come and pray in there as a stamp of approval. So the munafiqun built this mosque. And they requested from the messenger to come and pray in there. In some narrations it says, they requested this from the messenger just before he headed out to the battle of Tabuk. And in other narrations it says he had already gone out there and they sent a message out to him saying when you come back, pray in our mosque. And the messenger initially, not knowing that these are the munafiqun who have built this mosque, initially agreed and said to them that when we come back from the battle of Tabuk, then inshallah I'll come and pray in there. Inna ala safarin ila ghazwati Tabuk. Insha'Allah, إِذَا رَجَعْنَا نُصَلِّفِهِ That we are on a travel to the battle of Tabuk, but when we come back, insha'Allah, we'll pray in that mosque. So then it mentions that when they were coming back, when they were coming back, and they were almost back into Medina, just two or three days of journey time left, and the messenger would have been back and he would have gone and prayed there. That revelation came upon the messenger, لا تقوم فيه أبدا Do not stand and pray in there ever, in that mosque. And then these ayat, they continue and it revealed to the messenger that those individuals are indeed kuffar. That mosque was built in league, in cooperation with the munafiqun, the Jews, the Christians, all of the kuffar. They had all in league together, come together and cooperated upon building that building as a fake mosque where they could get together and plan against the Muslims. So when the affair became clear to the Prophet ﷺ, then obviously he did not go and pray in that mosque. And instead it mentions in the books of Sirah, he sent some of the men to go ahead of him there were just two or three days left to get to Medina. He sent some people to go ahead of him to Masjid al-Zirar to go to this mosque and destroy it. And they went and they burnt it down, they destroyed it to the ground. And then it mentions in the books of Sirah 
that the local believers, the local Muslims, the mu'minun of that community around Quba used to use the location of where the munafiqun had built this fake mosque as a rubbish tip. They used it as a garbage tip afterwards. All of their rubbish, they would go and dump it on that location where they had built this fake mosque. So this highlights to you the same point. The messenger was told, do not go and pray in that location, in that mosque. Because even though it was built as a mosque, looked like a mosque, it was not in reality a mosque. The people who had built it, had built it with intentions that were corrupt, had built it upon shirk, upon wanting to destroy Islam. And so their intentions and goals and objectives, they impacted upon this location. And it was not permissible to go and pray in that location. Whereas generally, جُعِلَتْ لِيَ الْأَرْضُ مَسْجِدًا وَطَهُورًا The Prophet said, all of the land, all of the earth has been made for me as a mosque. You can pray wherever you want. Pray in the car park there, pray in the park. But that location, the messenger was told, no, don't pray in that location. That was now made impermissible to pray in because of the intentions and the objectives and the goals of those mushrikun from that location. It was now not a location that was permissible to pray in and use. So the shaykh says, That the intentions, they impact upon those locations and buildings. And so the evil intentions, they impact upon locations in an evil way. And the good and righteous intentions, they put barakah, or Allah puts barakah then into those locations. So now, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, one of the other things you can understand from this is, دَلِيلٌ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ الْإِعْتِبَارِ بِالْمَقَاصِدْ لَا بِالْمَظَاهِرِ That the point to take into note is the intention of the people, their goals and their objectives, rather than the physical appearance of something. That physical appearance of the place they built was of a mosque. But the reality of their intentions and goals behind it was to destroy Islam. And so the Prophet ﷺ was prohibited from praying in that location. So now then the question arises, if this is the case, a church is built upon what? Tawheed or shirk? Shirk. A church is built upon Tawheed or shirk? Shirk. So how is it permissible to pray in a church? Or to buy a church and then make it into a mosque? It's that same location. Same walls, same ground. How can you now go and pray in what was a church location, that exact building? If this is the case that we are learning here. 
Somebody better have an answer or you're going to lose a lot of mosques. We haven't even got there yet. We're just talking about the first narration yet. How can you pray in a church that has been built upon intentions of shirk? And these narrations so far, the title of the chapter, do not slaughter for the sake of Allah in a place where they slaughter for other than Allah. Do not pray in this mosque. They built a mosque, but don't pray in there. Because they had built it upon corrupt intentions. So what therefore of the ones who built a place not even upon Tawheed at all, but upon shirk, just like these munafiqun, a church, how can you go and pray in there? How can you convert that into a mosque? Anyone? But all of them, the mushrikun who go and slaughter in that location, ma na'abuduhum illa liyuqarribuna ila Allahi zulfa. It's no longer used for that purpose. So previously you're saying it's somewhere where they actually slaughter for both at the same time. Mm-hmm. But if, if it's converted to a mosque, it's no longer used. But in that case, why did the messenger go and tell the companions, go and turn it down into rubble into the ground, keep it? The Muslims take over it. Use it as a mosque. Why destroy a building they've built if it can be changed into a new intention and you cannot use it? But again, in this narration, the munafiqun would have been kicked out and the believers would have owned it. Why destroy the building and get rid of it and say, do not, the ayah says, لا تقوم فيه أبدا Do not pray in there ever. Regardless of ownership of this of that, do not pray in there ever. Because from the basis it has been built upon kufr and shirk. Do not pray in there ever. So then how can we pray in churches? You mean the masjid there are, yeah. So we cannot pray in that mosque because it's shirk. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what, where we are allowed to pray in churches. We, Muslims buy churches all the time and make them into mosques. But those churches were built upon corrupt intentions of shirk. How can it be possible then according to what we're saying? It becomes a place of tawheed. So... So if it was Tajmeet, why did they destroy it? Keep it. And make the Muslims together. So the scholars, they give one, there's lots of uh, detail about this. There are narrations about how some of the companions went into churches and prayed. But generally an easy explanation. One easy explanation to remember for now. And then you can study more detail on the topic later. It's not our topic here. One explanation the scholars give is that the prohibition is about the same t- 
type of worship. So you cannot slaughter in a place where the mushrikun slaughter for other than Allah. But can you pray in a place where the mushrikun slaughter for other than Allah? Technically, yes, the scholars say. Because that now, you are not in any way resembling them, imitating them. They've specified this place as a place of sacrificing for other than Allah. So you cannot go and do that same act of worship there. But if you go do some other act of worship, nothing to do with the mushrikun, do the mushrikun even pray? Not at all. This is not an act of worship that has anything to do with them. If you're seen to do that there, there is no connection made between you and the mushrikun. Your act of worship is completely different. So that's why they say in a church, the kuffar, the mushrikun who built those churches, are they praying in them? Salah. Ruku' sujood, salah, nothing of the sort, singing their hymns and all those other things. You go in there and now do these acts of worship that are nothing to do what they were doing before. They weren't doing ruku' and sujood and salah. They weren't doing these forms of worship in those churches. They were just singing in there. So now you go and do these acts of worship in there. It's nothing to do with and no resemblance to what the mushrikun used to do in there. Masjid al-Dirar though, the munafiqun had built it to look like a mosque. And now if you were to take it over, you are going to use it as a mosque. So your actions now haven't changed from the source of why it was built. They had built it as a pretense of prayer in there, and a pretense of these actions of Islam and Tawheed in there. You're now going to go do them properly, but... It's the same though, isn't it? What they built it upon is what you're going to go do in there. For the sake of Allah though, they were doing it as munafiqun. So now if it's a different act of worship, the scholars they say, then the ruling isn't the same. So a church, you could go and take over, you could go and pray in a church. Because you're going to go do an act of worship that completely differentiates you from the mushrikun completely differentiates you from the mushrikun. So buying a church and taking it over, making it into a mosque, you have now completely differentiated the activities going on in there to what was going on there before. But a place of worship where they sacrifice to other than Allah, and you go and sacrifice for the sake of Allah, you're both doing the same actual action, and that is impermissible. And same with Masjid al-Dirat, they had built it as a mosque, pretending upon prayer. You would have now gone in there if you kept it and done the prayer. It would have carried on as the same. So a place where you're going to do the same actions as what the mushrikun were doing, then you cannot. But if your activities and actions and worship are completely differentiated from them, then that location isn't prohibited as such. The final narration then, we'll mention it now just to finish off with. وَعَنْ ثَابِتِ بْنُ الضَّحَّاكِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ قَالَ نَظَرَ رَجُلٌ أَنْ يَنْحَرَ إِبِلًا بِبُوَانَةِ or بِبَوَانَةِ Both are possible. فَسَأَلَ النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ فقال هل كان فيها وثن من أوثان الجاهلية يعبد 
قالوا لا قال فهل كان فيها عيد من عيادهم قالوا لا فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أوفي بنظرك فإنه لا وفاء لنظر في معصية الله ولا فيما لا يملك ابن آدم رواه أبو داود وإسناده على شرطهما In this narration of Thabit ibn al-Dhahak al-Ashhali radiyallahu anhu one of the companions he says that a man made a vow to slaughter a camel at a location called Bawana a place just not too far from Makkah he made a vow to slaughter a camel at this place firstly what is a vow what is the Islamic concept of making a vow upon an act of worship. It is to make an act of worship obligatory upon yourself, whereas prior to that it was not obligatory upon you. Like someone says, if Allah cures my beloved one, then he vows that he'll fast. Next week, next week from now, right now in our current real life, next week, is it obligatory for anyone to fast? Unless you have fasts to make up, which are more than two and a half weeks, you'd have to begin next week. But otherwise, generally, is it obligatory for anyone to fast next week yet? No. But if somebody makes a vow they are going to fast, now you've made obligatory upon yourself that which was not originally in the Sharia, obligatory upon you. That's why some of the scholars have mentioned, some of the scholars, they even take the opinion that it is haram to make vows. There is an opinion of some of the scholars that it is haram to make vows. They say, why are you going to make obligatory upon yourself something that Allah has not made obligatory upon you? Allah hasn't made it obligatory upon you to do the fasting next week or to do this or that. You're now vowing these things upon yourself, which the Sharia didn't make obligatory upon you. So some scholars even hold the opinion it's impermissible to do it. But the general opinion, the general and correct opinion is that it's makruh. Because as the narration mentions, إِنَّمَا يُسْتَخْرَجُ بِهِ مِنَ الْبَخِيلِ The Prophet ﷺ said, these vows, they only extract from the miserly one. Meaning, if you were sincere and genuine with your worship, just do it. Why do you need to make a vow to force yourself to do it? Because once you make a vow, now you are compelled, you must do it. So it's as though somebody is a miser in his worship, he wouldn't normally do it, he can't bring himself to do it, so then he puts a vow on himself to force himself to do it. So it's like you're extracting something from a miserly worshiper. He's miserly otherwise... But with the vow now, you are extracting something out of him, forcing him to do it. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said that they are not suitable. يُسْتَخْرَجُ بِهِ مِنَ الْبَخِيلِ It is only something that you extract from a miserly person. Uh, in the full narration, إِنَّ النَّظَرَ لَا يَأْتِي بِخَيْرِ إِنَّمَا يُسْتَخْرَجُ بِهِ مِنَ الْبَخِيلِ Vowing doesn't come with good, rather it is only extracting something, pulling something out from a miserly person. In some other narrations, it even says, لا تنظروا, do not make vows. 
So generally this is not something which is recommended. It is not mustahab and sunnah for you to make vows. But if you have made a vow, then it is an obligation for you to fulfill the vow. If it's a vow of obedience. So in this narration, the man has made a vow that he is going to slaughter a camel, ibilan. This is a word that indicates the plural of camels. There is no singular for it. The singular would be the other words, ba'ir, etc. He made a vow to slaughter a camel at a place called Buwana, or you can say Bawana, and it is nearby Mecca. Close to a Saadiyah, next to Yalamlam, the the uh, the checkpoint for the people of Yemen when they are doing Hajj, the Miqat, where you have to go into your ihram, it's near there. So then they came to the Prophet ﷺ to ask him if this vow is okay, if it's okay, and he should fulfill the vow or not. So they came and asked the messenger. So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, هَلْ كَانَ فِيهَا وَثَنٌ مِنْ أَوْثَانِ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ يُعْبَدْ Was there any idol from the idols of Jahiliyyah, meaning pre-Islamic times? Was there any idol there that is worshipped? They said to him, no. They said to him, no. There was no idol there that was worshipped. So then the messenger said, هَلْ كَانَ أو فَهَلْ كَانَ فِيهَا عِيدٌ مِنْ عِيَادِهِمْ Was it a location that they used as an Eid? And the meaning of using a location as an Eid is a location where you have fixed and regular gatherings. Fixed and regular gatherings. For example, they make a fixed appointment at this location we gather to celebrate or to worship or whatever they do every week on this particular day at this particular time or every month at this particular time, this particular day. You have fixed scheduled routines whereby you go back and gather at this location, then it's known as an Eid. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said, we're going to get to it as well, لا تتخذوا قبري عيدا do not make my grave. Do not take it as an Eid, as some type of scheduled, regular visitation pattern that you make, as some people do. Every Friday after Jumu'ah, you have to go to the grave of the Messenger, they say. Every Thursday after Fajr, you have to go. Fixed schedules they work on that you must go and visit the grave at this time of this day of this week. And the Prophet said, do not do that. Do not make my grave an Eid in that way. So when the Prophet asked them if they've done that, they said, no. This is not a location that the Mushrikun have made as an Eid, as a place of regular visitation or scheduled visitation, where they gather and they do worship and other affairs. So then the Prophet said, In that case, Fulfill your vow. In that case, fulfill your vow. فَإِنَّهُ لَا وَثَاءَ لِنَظَرٍ فِي مَعْصِيَةِ اللَّهِ وَلَا فِي مَا لَا يَمْلِكُ ابْنِ آدَمٍ 
Because indeed there is no fulfillment of a vow if it's a vow in sinning against Allah. You cannot fulfill that one. And neither if it is a vow in an affair that you do not control. We'll come to those in a moment. Here the Shaykh says then the point of this hadith is that the Prophet ﷺ before saying yes to them established from them whether that location was a location of the mushrikun and their worship. Was it a location of their idols? Was it a location of their gatherings and get-togethers and their worship and affairs? When it was made clear to the messenger, no, nothing of the sort happens there. Then he said to him, okay, you can go and fulfill your vow there. Meaning that if it was a location where the mushrikun had their idols and their statues, and it was a location where they got together and they gathered and they had their meetings and their regular fixtures there, then it would not have been permissible for him to go and slaughter at that location. Because that's one of the acts the mushrikun do too. And they would have been doing it at that location too. So this indicates again the same meaning that a location that the mushrikun are using to do their worship upon and their evil intentions are upon, then you do not go and use that location to do that type of act of worship there. So he was told, because the location was clean, go and fulfill your vow in that case. And that is something which is uh, obligated in the sunnah in that case then to fulfill a vow of obedience. Generally, sacrificing for the sake of Allah is an act of obedience. It's an act of worship. So this vow had to be fulfilled now then. And the messenger said to him, go and fulfill the vow then. And then he mentioned, because otherwise, the exceptions, there is no fulfillment of a vow if it is in disobedience to Allah. Meaning if somebody makes a vow to do something which is haram, he vows that he will do X, Y, and Z, and those actions are actions that are haram, then obviously it is haram for him to fulfill his vow. Cannot fulfill that vow. You can't say, but I vowed I was going to do this or that. It's haram those actions, impermissible for you to fulfill that vow. But, do you have to give an expiation for it? If somebody has made a vow of sinning, somebody has made a vow of sin, then it's impermissible to sin. You can't go and fulfill that vow of sinning. So you can't do it. But then do you have to give an expiation for it in that case? Difference of opinion? Why? So there are some scholars who say you do have to still give an expiation and there are some narrations they use. There are some narrations that indicate you would still have to give the expiation. Others they say no. That vow, there is no expiation upon it. It's a vow which is haram in the first place. So you cannot fulfill a haram vow and there is therefore no expiation upon it. But the others they say no. The vow has it been made or not? The vow has been made. The vow has it 
become established as a vow or not. It's sinning, the vow is a sin. But has it become established as a vow? Have you made the contract of vowing now or not? You've done that. Because if the vow was invalid, if a vow of sinning was invalid from the start, then the messenger wouldn't have said, do not fulfill a vow that is disobedience to Allah. He would have just said a vow of disobedience is invalid. The fact that he said don't fulfill it, proves that it's actually a valid vow, but do not fulfill it. So then the scholars say, well if it's a valid vow then, but you can't fulfill it because it's haram, you will have to give the expiation, it's a valid vow you made. So you have some differences on that issue. What is the expiation by the way? We're going to get to it in more detail, the next chapter is fully on the vows. But what is the expiation generally? Clothing poor people? Clothing, feeding and fasting? Homework for next week? Next week's chapter is fully on vowing. Full chapter on the actual details of vowing. Your homework is to find out in advance what is the expiation for vowing. The final part of this hadith says, and neither can you fulfill a vow in something that you do not control. Something that you do not control. And this can be two things. One, something that you do not control Islamically. And two, something that you do not control physically. Or literally. Something you do not control Islamically. For example, the example the scholars often give, they say if a person vows that if Allah gives him such and such, he will free the slave of such and such. That slave, do you own him? It's the slave of somebody else. So what right have you got to try and free him? You can't. Islamically, you don't have the right to do that. That person may say, no, I'm keeping him. So you can't physically do that. It's not your Islamic right. So you can't make a vow on something which you have no Islamic right upon. And the second one, uh, you cannot make a vow upon something you can physically or literally not do. And the example sometimes they give in the books is, a person says that if Allah gives me such and such, I will fly in the sky with my hand or or whatever a person says. Physically, literally, you can't do that. So you can't make a vow of that nature either. فِيمَا لَا يَمْلِكُ إِبْنُ آدَمْ So the point of the narration was that the man, he made the vow to slaughter at a place. The messenger allowed him to fulfill the vow there only after establishing that the place was not a place of the mushrikun, where they committed their shirk and they did their slaughtering and they did their worship. So all of these narrations and all of this chapter, they highlight that the intentions and the objectives of a people of shirk, of evil, impact upon those locations, and they should not then, and they cannot then be used for your worships to Allah sincerely in those same locations. This is a little bit like when the Salaf, they used to dislike anybody making dua next to 
the grave of the Prophet. Making dua sincerely, purely to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, an act of worship or not? Absolutely an act of worship. But the Salaf used to dislike people doing that act of worship next to the grave of the Messenger because it opens up the door to shirk. Common people looking at that, look at them. They're all doing their dua next to the grave. There must be some barakah to do your dua next to the grave of the Messenger. So it opens up doors to things which are impermissible and leading to shirk. So some of the Salaf, they used to dislike that anybody makes dua there. Go make it somewhere else, they used to say. Don't open up the door to the commoners and others looking at you making dua next to the grave of the messenger. So that is the chapter where it concludes next time, inshallah ta'ala, next week. We'll start with the next chapter, which is the chapter on vowing specifically and the details of that specifically. A few questions here, let's see. The correct way to dispose of ornaments made from plastic, glass, metal, or stone that contain the names of Allah or Quran ayat. These kinds of materials, you can't really burn them. So then the only other option would be to make sure they are properly buried. To make sure they are properly, securely buried somewhere. If I was ignorant of fasting, praying, zakat, when I was younger and I'm practicing now, but I have a long-term illness, do I have to make up my prayers, fasting, zakat, I missed in my younger years? According to the scholars who hold the opinion that the one who doesn't pray is not a Muslim in the first place, then they will say you do not have to make up anything because you were in those days not a Muslim. And this is an opinion scholars have. As Sheikh Abdul Muhsin al-Abbad was asked this exact question. That Sheikh previously in my older days, well in my younger days, I never used to fast, ignorant. And now I'm practicing. Do I have to make up those Ramadans? I never used to fast, I never used to pray. But now I'm practicing. So those previous years, do I have to make them up? The Sheikh said, no. You don't have to make up those years. Because if you say you weren't fasting and you weren't praying in those days, then you weren't Muslim in those days. Now, alhamdulillah, you've become Muslim. Now you fast and pray. But even in the case of uh, not being upon that opinion, scholars are not going to say to you in terms of your prayer that you have to make up all of those prayers from the past. Uh, in terms of zakat, if you are able, you are, there are fatawa about giving the zakat of your past years. If you're able to work out your general, expense, uh, your general uh, finances from your previous years and what you had, there is a fatwa or there are some fatwa generally about making up the zakat from the years you didn't give it. If you can generally work out what you had and what your percentages would have been. If you're not able to do so, then you make tawbah now and you start practicing now. Uh, in terms of the long-term illness, long-term illness, uh, I'm not sure what the relevance is with the long-term illness. If the relevance of that is that you can't fast now, then there are rulings for that. Yeah, you can uh, give the fidya if it's a long-term illness where you do not expect to be cured. 
but if it is an illness you will be expecting to be cured from, then you would uh, make up those days afterwards. The prayer is not exempt even if you have an illness, no matter what illness you have, even if you are completely bedbound and paralyzed from neck down, the prayer is not uh, excused. You still pray with your eyes. In the books of fiqh, the scholars have mentioned, move your eyes up and down to indicate the ruku' and the sujood. So illness doesn't prevent the prayer. Combining, etc. can be done, but it doesn't prevent the prayer. Anybody else? How do we reconcile between uh, one hadith saying knowledge uh, will be taken away by the death of the scholars until there are none left? And then there's another one saying there will never cease to be a group from this ummah manifest upon them. That's easy about the narration that there will never there, uh, there will never cease to be a group upon the truth. لا تزال طائفة من أمتي على الحق ظاهرين that they will remain upon the truth apparent all the way up until حتى تقوم الساعة up until up until the hour is established that group of people upon the truth أهل السنة will remain. But in the other narration, it mentions which one did you quote? The scholars and the knowledge being taken away until none are left. That one isn't really... Uh, there's other narrations even better than that, which indicate that at the end of time, the hour will not be established. I'll give you a better example to make your question even better. Where it mentions that the hour will not be established. لا تقوم الساعة إلا على شرار الخلق the hour will not be established except upon the most evil of people. So how can that be? If Ahlul Sunnah are going to remain all the way up until the hour is established, and yet another narration says the hour only gets established when the most evil of people remain upon the earth. So are those Ahlul Sunnah who remain at the end of time now from the evil of the people? The meaning is, as the sunnah explains, just before the establishment of the hour, just before the establishment of the hour, the wind comes, and those righteous people, all of them, they are taken. So the ones that remain after that are only the most evil of them, and then the hour is established. So one of them doesn't mean all the way, it means just up until before. Whereas the evil of the people, all the way up until the establishment of the hour. Anybody else? That doesn't require reconciliation. The reason being because it is by text of the Quran that Allah has informed us, the mushrikun, they are upon their shirk and we have hatred and uh, baghda, etc. We don't have love with the mushrikun. But Allah has also informed us it is permissible to marry from Ahlul Kitab, the Jews and the Christians, and it's permissible to eat the meat of the Jews and the Christians. That does not mean that there's any contradiction in hating and having no al-wala wal-bara with the Ahlul Kitab or the Mushrikun, because the love that a person has for his Christian wife or Jewish wife is not the love of worship or the love of obedience or the love, we're going to get to that chapter as well, it's not the love of uh, ibadah. It is a love which is a natural love, a natural emotion that you would have to your wife, to your parents, even if they were kuffar, to your children, even if they were kuffar. That is a natural love and that is permissible. That does not come into the realms of obedience and ibadah. 
And of course, on top of that, the narrations, they highlight they have to be from the chaste. Those who are upon the religion in chastity, and then the sunnah indicates how you give them da'wah. It's not like how people these days, they think, khalas, you can marry a Christian Jew, anybody. It has to be somebody upon chastity, and then you're going to give them da'wah and bring them to the religion, inshallah. There's other things mentioned about those. Anybody else? No, this type of question, which one is worse? Not gaining knowledge of something for fear of not practicing it. Basically, in other words, phrased as purposely not seeking knowledge, which is impermissible, it's haram. You can't purposely decide, I am going to on purpose not attend the classes, not seek any knowledge, so that I will not have this burden of having to practice all these things that I hear. So I will not know if this is halal and this is haram. I will not know about these things and I'll be excused. It is impermissible to do that. That's a haram action in the first place. To purposely take yourself away from knowledge, to purposely prevent yourself from learning the knowledge, it's impermissible in the first place. So the comparison can't be made which of the two. One of them is haram anyway. You have to seek knowledge. You have to seek knowledge. It's not an option to say which is worse or which is not. That's haram. And the other side of it, somebody who's got knowledge and isn't acting upon it, that's haram. But we're not going to... You, you can't give a comparison there and say which one is worse or better as though to say to someone, that's what you should do therefore. That it's worse if you've got knowledge and you don't act upon it, therefore leading the person to think in that case, I'll just not come to classes anymore then. And I'll be safe, there won't be any burden on me. You can't give that kind of answer to a person. You say to them, both are haram. You can't stop yourself from seeking knowledge, you must seek it. And then when you sort it, you must act upon it. That's the answer you give to a person there. Um, so it's a two-part question. So you mentioned earlier about a prohibition of, you know, in the, in the section of Masjid, there are why they couldn't just convert it. You mentioned it was because some of the scholars said it's a prohibition due to the same type of worship. So the first part is the Jews, uh, are we allowed to buy synagogues? Because the Jews, they, their worship resembles ours in terms of they pray similarly to how we pray. That's, that's one. Mm. The second is that in the following hadith, the Prophet the man that wanted to um, slaughter the Prophet inquired whether it was a place where there's an idol and some of the other things he didn't necessarily just say do they slaughter there so what's the that's okay that one is, is uh, easier because when the Prophet inquired about those two things if there's an idol there and if they have their gatherings there which indicates that they go and do their various forms of worship there it can be understood from that in the context of all of what the mushrikun do. If they have a place where there's an idol and they get together and do their regular gatherings and worship there, then it is almost understood without question that the slaughtering and those types of actions are all within there. Because that is exactly what they did. They have idols, they have places of worship, they go there, do i'tikaf there, they seek barakah there, they do slaughtering there. 
all of that is assumed within that. That wouldn't be an issue there. The synagogue, I don't know of any fatwas of scholars regarding synagogues, but uh, I, I don't know if you can really say that their worship is uh, similar to praying in terms of rukur, sujood, prostration, but I don't know if there's any specific fatwas. Maybe we can see if the scholars have given any specific fatwas on specific types of buildings of worship and whether they can be converted or not. Allah Alam. Anything else? Because he sacrificed it for other than the sake of Allah. He sacrificed it for an idol, not for Allah. So he enters hellfire because of shirk. Anybody else? Uh, is there a kafara for um, making a vow for not doing the second vow you mentioned? Not doing what? Uh, for expiation, for a vow. If you make a vow that you're not able to fulfill. You make a vow that you're not able, a vow of yeah. Uh, obedience. Yeah. A vow of obedience that you cannot fulfill. Yeah. Of the type of Fimalaya uh, Milk Ibn Adam, you mean? Yeah. Oh, expiation for that. In the vow that you cannot fulfill, that one there is a possibility. We'll have to look into it further in the next chapter. But there's a possibility the scholars say that vow doesn't become established because it's impossible for it to become established. The vow, you know, when they say, لا ينعقد, it doesn't, the vow doesn't take shape. It does, the contract can't be made on that vow Because you can't fly in the first place It's an impossible vow You can't free that slave, he's not yours It's an impossible vow So those ones, it's more towards the opinion of saying there's no expiation Because the vow, it's not a valid vow in the first place Whereas the vow of sinning, for something you can do and sin on Then you can do that action and it's a valid vow So there is an expiation, some scholars say there but in this one, it's more like the vow is invalid in the first place. You can't fly. The vow can't be possible in the first place. Okay, the command came to destroy Masjid al but the mosque, uh, the uh, church thing, it's not connected to that anyway. Because the church, uh, in reality, when you look into the uh, Kutub al-Sunan, there's a lot of examples and narrations from the Salaf they used to pray in churches. So regardless of Masjid al regardless of that, there are p- uh, evidences, there are narrations, it's clear about the permissibility of using a church, uh, you know, as long as the, all the crosses and all everything else is covered up. Uh, it's permissible and there's lots of other evidences anyway. We don't need to say that it was specific about destroying Masjid Darar. Yes, in some regards you can say that was specific because the revelation specifically came upon that. But there's no direct link between that and churches. Hmm. Uh, what are the key... Differences in content between uh, Sunan Abi Dawud, Ibn Majah, Tirmidhi, and all those kind of books, it's already 9.53. If we start that one, we'll be here till Fajr. Another time, inshallah.
But if you want to know, uh, there's a series of lectures, Tadweenu Sunnah. As-Sabil Leeds, the brothers in Leeds, I think as-Sabil.com or something. There's a series of lectures known as Tadweenu Sunnah, the preservation of the Sunnah. Your answer will be in there. It's a series of about 10, 10, 15, 20 lectures that goes through exactly the question you asked. Yeah, the narration is talking about their beliefs. All those other groups, their beliefs are beliefs that are in contradiction to what is in the Quran and the Sunnah. So by default, it would indicate that they are not upon as-sirat al-mustaqim. But individually and specifically, like we said, we don't give the rulings upon a person that he is in hellfire or he is this or that. He may be forgiven. Some people may be forgiven their sins and their shortcomings. Those accountabilities will occur. But generally, those sects, they are upon misguidance, upon deviance, and they are deserving of the hellfire. Whenever we say someone is going to go to the hellfire, the general rule is that they are deserving of going to the hellfire. But there may be, there may be events that occur and shafa'a and other things where a person deserving to go to the fire doesn't actually go to the fire. We'll have to leave it there for today. Inshallah ta'ala, we'll resume next week. I think next week, uh, Isha 8.15 then. So, it'll have to be after Isha yet. Straight after Isha next week, 8.15, and we'll start straight afterwards, inshallah.